strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks so much for being here. Yesterday was MLK Day as the uh, the country recognized and remembered the impact that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had on American society and his legacy here in Arizona and across the country. Um their story on AZ Central talks about Arizona was a holdout about honoring Martin Luther King Jr., which is true. Um, we lost a Super Bowl because of it. But um, what I like to remember more about the state of Arizona is it was the first state in the country that honored Dr. King with a holiday um, by popular vote. It wasn't enacted by the legislature. It was enacted by the voters. I think that more accurately reflects the people and the attitudes of, the, of people in Arizona. Um it's interesting. Growing up like I did, I grew up in the South. I grew up in, in Fort Myers, Florida, in Southwest Florida, and I don't want to paint an inaccurate picture. It was a great place to to grow up. But, you know, in the 1970s, there was unwritten rules, and there were the, culturally it was a different place. And you, I, I still think that the, the um, nowism and the, the uh, you know, trying to take culture as it was and plug it into today's society and, and, and compare them is not a fair comparison. Um, but I, I, you know, I saw racism. I saw what it looked like. It was ugly. It still is ugly. Um, but I never lost sight. And I, I've always, I, I've been more of a student of Dr. King's, although not an expert. I've read so much of what he's written, and and I, I focus so much on what I saw and what his motivation was in trying to make changes to the horrible laws that were dividing people and 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 taking a, a race of people and actually by legislation making them less than. Um, it was contrary to what the founding fathers wanted. It was contrary to who we are as Americans, and it needed to be changed. And uh, he ended up giving up his life in order to make that happen, along with other civil rights leaders. But there is a reason why I believe that Dr. King was the face of the civil rights movement. And uh, I don't mean this as <clears throat> direct disrespect to anybody in the civil rights community now. I don't mean this as an insult. But I look at Dr. King and I think he was the, the last really big name in America where the mission was bigger than the man. I don't mean that to insult anyone, but I looked at, at, at Dr. King and he was laser focused. Uh, he was so disappointed as a pastor, not just as, as a black man, but as a pastor that other white pastors in the South weren't joining him. Um, that, that he thought that it was a Christian duty, not a duty as, as a black person, uh, but as a, as a, a Christian man, he thought the unequal treatment of any human being was a disservice and sinful. Uh, and I, I thought that was unique. It was something that was overlooked. Uh, and the reason why I like that aspect of it is because it's a lot more inclusive of people of every race. And that civil rights movement, there were a lot of white people that went against the culture of the day and stood up and said racism is wrong. A systemic and institutional racism is absolutely wrong. Legislative racism is horrible. And um, standing up and doing the things that Rosa Parks did and Medgar Evers and some of the other great civil rights leaders. But Martin Luther King Jr. had an ability to rally people when he spoke. You know, the I have a dream speech, the mountaintop speech that he gave right before he was killed. And, uh, you know, where he said, I, I, I've, I've been to the mountain and I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. And he went on to uh, prophetically say, predicting almost his death, saying, I may not get there with you, but we as a people will get to the promised land. It was such an inspirational thing that was motivating people that were living uh, horrible lives at times where their lives were literally being threatened, but certainly their livelihoods. 
And I look back at that time and I, I think, how could we as a country have allowed that to happen? And I'm glad as a country we've changed it. So I hope, and I don't know how anybody else remembers that day or how many, you know, you, uh, like on Memorial Day, I treat it differently because of what's happened in my family than many others do. But how other people look at um, Martin Luther King Day in this country. And um, it was, it's interesting to see someone that dedicated their life to a mission, to a cause that dramatically changed the views of people, how far we've come. So I recognize that in many cases, we have a long way to go. Um, we understand that racism exists in far too many people of all races um, that just don't like people because of the color of their skin or where they were born or whatever it is, and which is a horrible thing we should all somehow try to get past. Those predisposed ideas that are often wrong about people. But on Martin Luther King Day, to recognize how far we've come as a country, I think is important. I, I, I don't, that doesn't mean we ignore how far we have to go. But wouldn't it, isn't it, I think, fitting to, to look at Dr. King and his legacy and say, look how far we've come. And it's more unifying to me. And I don't mean just to make people feel good. It doesn't have to always be warm and fuzzy. But we do have a long way to go. But if you look at where we've come from, if you look at what civil rights leaders had to endure culturally and then how the physical abuse that happened, the murder of people like Dr. King, the sheer hatred by groups of people that was exposed. And it was exposed by the love he had for the mission. That to me is the biggest the, – the, the biggest part of, of Dr. King's life for me was self-sacrifice. His willingness to sacrifice everything, his privacy, ended up losing his life. But everything about him was given up to this cause, and uh, it, it changed the country. It, it absolutely changed, and it's helped shape who we are now. And what's interesting is it has shaped what we should be. You know, we all have heard the quotes by Dr. King. Many of us have, have echoed them or have used them. Uh, you know, when he said his four little children will one day be judged by the uh, not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. That's the goal. Um, so it isn't just how far we've come, but it's also the measuring stick by where we need to go. Um, the idea that we see someone for who they are and not how they look. I don't care if it's someone that's got long hair or someone that's covered in tattoos or someone that's a different race. The predisposed ideas of judging someone based on immediate perception of what we see is something that we fail. When we do it, sometimes we lose out. And um, the institutional part of it, the laws that needed to be changes, it changed, the idea that it's so foreign to our children right now. The idea that someone of a different skin color would have to use a different drinking fountain, sit in a different place in a restaurant or a completely different restaurant, sleep in a different hotel, use a different restroom. That idea is so foreign to people and it's a good thing. It is, isn't it a great thing that that is foreign to our children? Our, our grandchildren especially. That the idea that we would say to someone 
And it's one thing I'll finish with is it's also why when we hear people wanting to segregate, when I hear African-American students on college campuses wanting places that only black students can go, I think your grandparents, your great-grandparents lost everything, risked everything so that that could never happen, that you had every right to walk on a college campus side by side with students of any race in safety and you get an education and comfort and For you to want to segregate seems to me anyway to be contradictory to what they fought for all those years ago. So I hope we're past it. I hope we are moving forward. Um, At least that's my wish. Coming up in a moment, we had a very interesting conversation this morning with Stephen Richer. Stephen is the Maricopa County recorder in charge of elections for Maricopa County. He has ideas for election reform, but we talked about a lot with elections, and we're going to get some of what he said and let you play. I'm going to play back part of what he said coming up here in just a couple of moments. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show. KTAR News, 92.3 FM and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks again for being here. Appreciate you spending some time with the show. A couple of really good interviews today, if I do say so myself, but it was the, it was obviously the guests that were great information. Stephen Richard joined me. He is the county recorder. I'm going to play a little bit of this interview and kind of break it down, but I'd love for you to go back on the podcast or download, subscribe to the podcast and listen to it in its entirety. A lot of information in there about voting in Maricopa County. And then we spoke with Warren Peterson, who was the Senate president in our state legislature, and he joined us for two segments in studio. Very informative about the vision. <clears throat> of the state legislature, especially from the Senate perspective moving forward in dealing with uh, with Governor Hobbs and the plans and negotiations. So if you, I'd love for you to go back and listen to both. I thought they were both informative. So I asked Mr. Richer, first of all, about elections. Why is it? Why do you think we need change in Maricopa County? Every act of civil servant should be to continue to improve things no matter where things are you know, currently. But also we've been hearing from people over the last two years and preferences change, needs change, the manner in which people are voting in Arizona changes, the nature of our contest changes. And so, you know, when you think of something like the results production, well, that's the result of the changing nature in which people are voting and also the result of our increasingly close contest that that prompts that when maybe it wouldn't have been discussed four years ago. I asked him about there is a movement and it's it's not a small movement. There is a lot of people in the state of Arizona that believe that the way we make our elections fail safe or more fair and a lot more accurate would be two things. Number one would be to eliminate mail-in ballots and early voting and make sure that people go to the polls on election day, one day, one vote, vote in person. And the other is then hand counting of all of the votes. They believe that that would be more accurate. And if you have enough people to do it, it could move things along more quickly. So I asked him about those two things. I said, what do you say to people that subscribe to those? And he broke it down first, starting with about early vote or what we call mail-in ballots. The legislation is the art of the possible, and we've been having early voting since 1992, and it's wildly popular. And so while I know some quarters it's not popular, I would say that that's not going anywhere in Arizona, and the trajectory seems to be you know, more and more people are using early balloting. 
So, um, you know, I, I look at that and, I, and I, I agree with him wholeheartedly. I do not vote early, not because I have anything against it whatsoever. I'm just someone that likes to go to the polls. I, I don't know what it is. Maybe you're like me. Um, I don't mind the lines. I kind of like the Americanism of showing up at the polls and voting in person. I like that aspect of it. Um, so I, I don't mail in my ballot. I don't have anything against it. I don't I'm not fearful of it. Um, I just don't I don't do it myself. But I understand that there are a lot of people out there that take voting seriously. So what they like to do is get their ballot in the mail and break it down. They like to look through the issues, look through the candidates. Take all the time that's necessary to cast their vote instead of standing in a polling place and trying to get out of there as quickly as possible. So I went on to ask him about the voting machines because that's the other thing that this movement seems to believe is that somehow the voting machines have been or are being manipulated and it is not counting the votes accurately or properly. So they want to eliminate tabulation machines and they want to go to a strict hand count. How does he address that issue? Studies have shown across in Industries, whether it's voting or any other industry, that when it comes to repetitive, redundant tasks, machines are much faster and much more accurate than are humans. And so if you're talking about election integrity, you actually want machines part of the process and remove humans who are, of course, fallible. And also, you know, when there are bad, when the rare occasion when there's a bad actor, it's a human, not a machine. So when we look at what happened in Maricopa County, and I want to make sure I make this distinction. And it isn't to lay blame, but it's just to explain. Mr. Richer and the way it's broken down in Maricopa County, the County Board of Supervisors handle Election Day. That is their purview on Election Day. In-person voting is run by the County Board of Supervisors. The County Recorder's Office is in charge of early voting. So the problems that happened on Election Day were not under the control of Mr. Richer, although he was very outspoken about what was happening. He was one of the people that was called on all day long to explain in the days that followed what happened, but this was not something that was within his control. He's talking about things that he's advising based on what he sees. 2024 is going to be an even more important election. They're all very important, and it seems like everyone is more important than the last, but we have a presidential election. We also, again, have the entire House of Representatives. Another one-third of the United States Senate will be up for grabs, and there could be an amazing shift in power in America. So Arizona, again, is going to be ground zero for all of this, and the goal is always, the goal always is that we just get it Right. And so anything that gets us there, you know, um, and I listen, I'm someone that agrees, you know, as much as I say, I have no problem with mail in ballots. If you have people that are dead that are still getting ballots mailed to them, they shouldn't be on the voter rolls. There's got to be a way to clean up the voter rolls where it's only people that want a ballot that are getting them. I'm not saying you should always have to request one. I don't want to, you know, uh, stop people from voting or getting a ballot. I don't want to slow that down or impede it. But we all understand. If you've moved to a different location, if you've moved out of state, unfortunately, when people die, they should not be on the voter rolls that way. It shouldn't be that way. Coming up in a moment, why are employers trusted more than the government? I think it's a good sign, but we'll discuss it next.
strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks for being here. Coming up in the 11 o'clock hour, we are going to reset our interview with the Senate President Warren Peterson. It was a very interesting conversation and uh, a lot of detail, which I really enjoyed. And I think uh, it'll be worth listening to in the 11 o'clock hour. Did you hear this is coming up? All that before we end up the show. But I want to revisit something. Earlier, I kind of went on a rant, and there's a story that says, uh, this is from Axios, I believe, employers are trusted more than the government. And I think it always should be that way. That doesn't mean that you don't balance oversight. We all understand that there are rules, there's oversight, and we also understand there are rule breakers. There's no doubt about it. But the demonization of the wealthy or the demonization of the employers of authority in any way I think is wrong-headed. America has been great because of its work ethic, and so there's nothing wrong with a hard day's work. I have a different – maybe I have a different philosophy than other people um, because I, I – I guess maybe I have an arrogance, which I'm not necessarily proud of, but there was an arrogance about me as a tradesman in this. Um, I didn't care how much money I made my boss. Matter of fact, I wanted my boss to be flush with cash because of the work I did. If it was a job that we were tracking that wasn't an hourly job, if it was a bid job that there was, you know, the the boss figured it was going to take this much material and this much time to do the job, it was my goal to bring it way under so that if he made more money or she made more money, you know, an hourly job, if I was doing hourly work where a lot of times I was doing service and repair, I wanted to bring back a stack of work orders they were billing thousands of dollars a week. Why? Because when it came time for my annual review, I wanted to be able to say to them, I'm an asset to your company and I'm making you a lot of money. Now I expect I expect to be taken care of. I want a new vehicle. I, you know, I want to drive the new van. I want tools that are going to make my job easier. I want a raise. I want more vacation time. So there is a level of arrogance. It isn't just that I was subservient and he's the boss or she's the boss. And No, it is, it's a relationship. Everybody works for someone. My boss works for his or her customers, um, meaning that they send me to do a job, but the boss is working for them. We are working for that customer that's writing the check. We all work for someone. So I was encouraged to see this because a lot of what's going on in the economy has people concerned. People are looking for new jobs. There is a shift, and I'm I'm afraid it's going to go in the other direction soon, and I mean that sincerely. We have had what I consider to be a seller's market, meaning if you are an employee, if you are an able-bodied person, especially if you're skilled in one area – Over the last few years, you could almost within reason and sometimes a little bit unreasonable, you could set your terms. Want to work from home? Fine. You want to work four tens? Okay. Whatever you want. This is how much money you want to stay here? Okay. You need a bonus? Well, you you stay with us for 90 days without missing a day. We're going to give you a thousand dollars. Whatever it took to keep people on job sites. Well, when you start seeing a slowdown in our economy, which we're seeing, you start seeing a slowdown in the hiring, which we are seeing, and those opportunities for people to jump ship and go somewhere else where the grass might be greener starts to go away, you're going to see bosses starting to tighten up a little bit. It's the nature of business. And when it becomes a buyer's market, when there are more people than there are jobs, the wages go down, the benefits go down, the uh, in, the the necessity and the uh, you know kind of the enthusiasm to hire people goes down. And I hope that doesn't happen. It's been the one saving grace in our economy. 
And I'm hoping that that these stories that talk about people trusting their employer more than the government, I'm not an anti-government person. It's not like I hate the government, but we all understand how it's bloated and how it's inefficient and that making – having a smaller government – Having a smaller government makes us a better place. Allowing an employer to run their business the way he or she sees fit is is interesting. And we're gonna you're gonna hear more about this uh, coming up in about 25 minutes when I dive into the Senate President's plan because they've come out with an anti-inflation plan here in Arizona, and a lot of it has to do with getting rid of some licensing fees and getting rid of things for the average working person and. I will tell you from experience as a contractor, there are some things that are necessary possibly, but a nuisance. Um, having what's called a privilege tax license. If you're in a, like a contractor like I was, where you are not just billing customers for time, but you're billing them for material. You're not just selling them goods, you're selling them services. Um, in construction, every city has a privilege tax amount. And so whenever you do a job in that city, you've got to charge that tax, collect that tax, and send it to that city each month with a report. But you also had to buy a privilege tax license in every city you worked in. And then every month after you had that, whether you worked in that city or not, you had to file a report with that city that said, I didn't do any work, so I'm sending you a zero report this month, or I did this much work in your city this month, here's your check for this amount. And it adds to the paperwork. You think about anywhere you are listening in this valley, and you think about going from east to west, from Apache Junction and Gilbert and Santan Valley and Queen Creek and Chandler and Mesa and Scottsdale, and you work your way through Phoenix, and you go west to the western towns, how many cities you could be doing work in. Simplifying those codes and making that easier for a business to run their business so they don't have as much non-productive labor. Again, not an insult, but it's non-productive labor. It's someone that's doing a necessary job, but it's not a job that's making you any money. It's not a person in a work truck. It's not somebody on a job site. It's not somebody performing the skill. What they're doing is the paperwork and compliance issues with the government. Getting those things down to a minimum where we can still run the government efficiently, but also allow business owners to spend their time doing what they do best. That to me seems to be the most common sense thing we can do. We're looking at the economy right now and most experts and there are more and more economists that are saying we are going to see a recession. If they're not already saying we're in a recession, you're afraid, you know, you define it how you want politically, but we are going to see a recession this year. My fear in that is if prices don't come down very quickly, you are going to see people suffer because they've been doing two or three jobs to keep their heads above water. When those side hustles dry up, when they go away, we're going to see people in financial ruin or at least in big financial difficulty. And no one wants to see that. I don't want to see this president fail because I don't want America to fail. But we see there's a reason why I disagree with his policies and we're headed in that direction. Taking more money out of the American economy by virtue of taxing the rich, and I'm doing the air quotes, how is that, condu- how is that conducive to a good economy? It isn't. It pacifies the class warfare in some people, but it doesn't do anything to keep our economic machine moving. That's my biggest concern. Uh, In a moment, the president makes some comments about guns during Martin Luther King Day and the speeches. Once again, he is saying some things you need to hear and back to an old adage about police and reform. We're going to get to that coming up here in just a couple of moments. 
strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks for being here. We spent some time earlier talking about Martin Luther King Day and, and uh, the recognition of the accomplishments of Dr. King and the changes that were made because of his life and the legacy that he's left behind. And the president of the United States appropriately went and spoke at, at some events for Martin Luther King Day, but he used the opportunity to talk about his plans for gun control. And so, you know, I'm not a big fan of gun control. I am a big Second Amendment advocate. I don't think that the problem is the guns. The idea that you're going to call something an assault weapon is ridiculous. It's like calling an automobile an assault automobile. Um, and, and so I don't want to get too much into the, the defense of the Second Amendment for a moment. Other than this, uh, I want you to hear something that the president said, and I want to break it down for you because I have maintained and I still do maintain that unlike other people that protest things, that the majority of people that protest and are gun control advocates come from a position of ignorance that they don't know a whole lot about guns. I want to prove that to you. I want you to hear the president, and this is, again, in the context of him talking about gun control, he is also talking about retraining and reforming policing. We have to retrain cops. As to why should you always shoot for de- with deadly force? The fact is, if you need to use your weapon, you don't have to do that. And look, to call a fresh approach to recruit and how we recruit, how we hire, how we train, how we promote, and how we retain, retain and for law enforcement. As far as the retention and all the other stuff, I agree. But did you hear him say, if you have to use your weapon, you don't always have to shoot with deadly force? I want, I, I just want to spend a minute on this and the complete ignorance in a statement like that. Officers don't shoot to kill. They shoot to stop a threat. That is not semantics, but that is truly how police officers train. They shoot until the threat is ended and then they stop shooting. But the idea that you're going to shoot the gun out of somebody's hand in a moment in a gunfight, you're going to shoot somebody in the leg. All of this stuff is fantasy that you see in movies. Um, There were 11 Phoenix police officers shot last year. We have already seen a Scottsdale police officer shot this year. The idea that the people that they are – the adversaries that they face are not shooting to kill is a complete and utter fantasy. It is it – is, uh, you are dealing with a deadly element. It used to be in this country that if there was anybody out there that would dare shoot a police officer, if you had no um, – Fear of taking a life of an officer, you didn't fear anything. And I still believe that to be true. But the idea, and I'm going to tell one story just because I want you to understand what police officers face. Um, When Officer Maldivan was shot, he was shot at point blank range by someone who shot him. And I, I believe the first shot was it hit him in the head. But when Officer Maldivan got on the was on the ground and already incapacitated, this suspect stood over him and unloaded the gun in his hand into this officer. And by a miracle of his family's prayer and this young man's strength, he's alive and recovering, which is a miracle. But not only did that suspect unload his weapon into a police officer that was already on the ground, he then tried to remove the police officer's gun and shoot him with his own gun, but he was unable to get it out of the holster. 
um, a police officer that was investigating a domestic violence call at a gas station. The suspect pulled up in a Prius and just shot through the window, shooting that officer. Uh, the officer that was enticed into a home because the suspect wanted to shoot the officer in the head, but because of the quick mind and the and the perception of that officer, he was severely wounded in the shoulder. But in that, I think there were nine officers in total that were injured in the altercation that followed with that suspect. The point I'm making is the police officers are faced with deadly force a lot in these situations. The complete ignorance of the president of the United States to say that they don't have to shoot with deadly force when faced with deadly force is absurd. I will tell you that officers don't want to take lives. I, I don't know a police – yesterday, I, I had breakfast yesterday at a great place in the Biltmore, and there were – I believe it was five Phoenix police officers that were having breakfast. They were on their, their meal break, and I had an opportunity to talk to them for a few minutes after, and what I was watching during the time they were having breakfast, there were about three people in this breakfast place, including me, that were going to buy their, their breakfast. So three other people got to it before I could. But there was a table that sat down with a young boy. He was probably four years old, and he was excited to see the police. So his mom took him over, and the police invited him to sit down at the table with them, these officers. Well, now they're on their meal break. They're on working a shift, but they're on their meal break. They all stopped what they were doing. They talked to this young man. They gave him a, a Phoenix police badge sticker they could stick on his shirt and made this kid's day. That's the side of policing that people need to see. That is the human beings that are inside those uniforms. The absurdity of saying that if you get into a situation – and the president wasn't saying deadly force wasn't necessary, that it wasn't necessary. He said if you need to use your weapon – we're not talking about a taser. We're not talking about capstan or pepper spray, whatever you want to call it. We are talking about discharging a firearm. So it is a situation that requires deadly force. The president of the United States said we have to retrain officers so that they don't shoot to kill or shoot for deadly force. It is the most absurd statement. It is a statement born of ignorance. And, and the whole gun control idea falls in line with that. The idea that it's not the people behind the weapon, that it's the weapon itself. It's just foolishness. It's absolute and utter foolishness. Coming up just after 11 o'clock, we talked with the Senate President, Warren Peterson, for a couple of segments on the show. And, man, do we get a lot of great information. We'll talk about it. You'll hear it next.